4. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and actually tonight will be an introduction to this verse. We won't get into the verse itself, but I'd like to introduce it, and I've passed out a handout that will help you to follow along um, with what our major subject will be. After teaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul then, in Romans chapter 4, uses Abraham, a revered figure to the Jews, certainly to the Jews, and also to many Gentiles, to illustrate his point that a man is saved by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law. Paul begins this chapter by acknowledging that if anybody could have been justified by works, it would have been Abraham. But even as good as Abraham was, he wasn't perfect. And a careful reading of the scripture would have proved Paul's point to even the most ardent Abraham worshiper. But Abraham's justification, while it would have been before men, still wouldn't have been before God. To validate that truth, Paul turns to a very well-known verse in the Old Testament, Genesis 15:6, what I call the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then many, as we follow through the rest of the chapter, many New Testament scholars see the rest of chapter 4 as Paul's exposition, or his commentary, if you will, on that particular verse, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And when Paul looks at it very carefully, as we can by going back to the Old Testament, we'll see that a careful examination of Genesis 15:6 demonstrates that Adam's justification was by means of his faith in God, certainly not his works. I've had occasion to talk to Jewish folks sometimes, and it's always a wonderful conversation, but they've got a skewed view of Father Abraham. It's a skewed view now, and it was a skewed view then. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we looked at the prayer of Manasseh, we looked at some writings from the Mishnah, uh, and the Jews at Paul's time thought Abraham was perfect and he didn't need, or many Jews at Paul's time thought Abraham was perfect, he didn't need justification. They also thought Isaac and Jacob were perfect too. A little harder to squeeze those two into that mold. But they felt like all the, the patriarchs were not in need of justification. And even today, people think that Abraham was good enough that he earned merit with God. But if we look at the Old Testament, if we look at the writings of Moses, we'll see that that's just simply not the case. So Paul picks the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, Genesis 15.6, to, to make his point that Abraham is not saved by good works or faith plus works. That's, the th that's his first subject. We've studied that in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 4. Abraham was not saved by circumcision. And we took a look at that last week in verses 9 through 12. And today we begin an introduction of the fact that Abraham was not saved by keeping the law. That's verses 13 through 16. He was not saved by keeping the law. And then in verses 17 through 22, Paul's going to turn that coin over and give us the positive aspect of how Abraham was justified. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. So we've studied so far in this chapter the first two negatives, how Abraham was not justified. He was not justified by good works or by faith plus works. He was not justified by circumcision. Remember, we, we said that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17, both in the order of the books and in the chronology. Abraham was justified long before he was circumcised. And tonight we begin a study 
that Abraham was not justified by keeping the Mosaic law. Now, ordinarily I do this as a monologue, but let me, let me throw this question out there. How can we know for sure that Abraham wasn't justified by keeping the Mosaic law? The Mosaic law wasn't, in, it wasn't around. Moses came uh, some 400 years after Abraham. So that being on the table right now, that's, a, that's a, uh, an answer to that question. But we're not the only ones that can figure that out. We're not the only ones that have read the Torah. The Jews certainly read it too. And the answer that the Jew would have for that is that Abraham kept the law perfectly before the law was ever invoked. Again, a little bit of a, of a stretch a little bit of trying to read our theology back into the text. Of course, that's not a problem that was germane to that time. It's a problem that we have at this time, too. But, but it, it's obvious that he didn't keep the Mosaic Law because Moses lived some 400 years after Abraham. But what about the Mosaic Law? What purpose did it serve? It seems like in... In this dispensation, we're always saying what the Mosaic Law wasn't. And in fact, the more dispensational we are, the more we tend to look at the Mosaic Law almost as if it was something bad, something that was, that was maybe not, uh, something that was imperfect, that there's something wrong with the Mosaic Law. And I want to make sure that you understand from the outset, is the Mosaic Law bad? Heaven forbid that we would say that. Why? Paul's going to tell us later in Romans chapter 7, because God wrote it. It can't be bad. It can't be imperfect. It is perfect. It do, there are aspects of the Mosaic Law that we don't happen to uh, be under at this particular time. But that doesn't make it bad. The Mosaic Law is not a bad word. It's not a bad phrase. It's not a bad part of the Bible. So we need to make sure that we understand that going into it. So before we begin an exposition of verses 13 through 16, let's answer the question, what purpose does the Mosaic Law serve? And we'll do that under ten categories. You have them in front of you. At least I hope you do. If we ran out of handouts, then please look on, look on the person next to you. We'll look at these ten categories, and then as we close, I'll give you two very, very important things. Two very important things to consider with regard to the function of the law and the believer, get this, in this dispensation. I thought that would wake you up. There, there is value to the Mosaic Law for the believer in this dispensation. And I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. You're going to have to wait till the end. So follow along very closely. I want to, before I get into this material, I, w I would like to take just a second and note I am personally very, very grateful for the ministry of a man by the name of Dwight Pentecost when it comes to this area of the study of theology. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary. He's 89 years old now. I got to, was blessed to spend some time with him. Lisa was too this summer up at Hermit Basin, and it was just a delightful time. In fact, when I, I don't mind telling you, when I walked away from him after that last session before I left, I got a little misty-eyed. My daughter looked at me and says, well, why are you doing that? And I, I said, you, you probably wouldn't understand. But this, this is a man in whose church I was saved when I was seven years old, came full circle 30 years later, sat in his seminary classes. He's one of the finest scholars of our era, and um, I really appreciate him. The, the work that I will give you tonight 
is essentially work that he has taught us in various classes at Dallas Seminary, so I want to give credit where credit is due. It needs to be observed from the outset that many who lived under the law had the deepest reverence and respect and love for the Mosaic Law. The writer of Psalm 119, who is anonymous, we're not sure who it is. Some people think it was David. I'm not sure about that. But the writer of Psalm 119 said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 77, he said, The law is my delight. Again, in verses 103 and 104, he wrote, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. And once again, in verse 159, he said, Consider how I love thy precepts. This is someone who is under the law. Sometimes we in this dispensation look at people who were under the law as some sort of, somehow they were oppressed. No, it, it wasn't a, oppression, certainly not to the writer of Psalm 119. And then when we get to Romans chapter 7, verse 12, we'll see Paul say at that time, in this dispensation, writing to believers in the church age, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Let's not forget that the Mosaic Law was not technically the law of Moses. It was the law of God, and it was good. It was perfect. We should not, because we live under a different rule of life, what Charles Robert called a different economy, but without the money. I would, the rule of life, I think, is more descriptive for most people. Just because we live under a different rule of life, don't think for a minute that the law was bad. God wrote the law. The law was perfect and is perfect. The law was given as a gracious provision by God to a redeemed people, Israel, who were in a state of spiritual infancy to meet their needs. Let me say that once more because I think if you're going to write something down, this would be the thing to write down. The law was given as a gracious provision by God to a redeemed people. That redeemed people was Israel who were in a state of spiritual infancy in order to meet their needs. As the scriptures are studied, a number of reasons may be derived why the Mosaic Law was given to the nation Israel. First, it was given to reveal the holiness of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.15, But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, quotation from the law, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The fact that God was a holy God was made very clear to Israel in the law of Moses. Perhaps, perhaps the primary function of the law was to reveal the fact to Israel of the holiness of God and to make Israel aware of the character of the God that had redeemed them out of Israel. So of the ten things that you've got on your list in front of you, perhaps the primary function of the law would be that first one. It doesn't relegate all the rest to a second-class position, but weight would be heavily put toward the first one. All the requirements laid upon the nation of Israel were in light of the holy character of God as revealed in the Mosaic Law. Now, as we go through these ten, what I'd like for you to do is do a mental exercise. I told you a, minute, a 
just a few minutes ago. When we finish, I'm going to give you two very important aspects for understanding the Mosaic Law and how we relate to it today. As we go through these ten, see if you can't formulate what those two aspects are yourself. Do that mental exercise, and then see if you and I come up with the same thing as we go on. That's a hint that number one might have something to do with what's coming later. I want you all to make a good score. <laughs> Second, the Mosaic Law was given to reveal or to expose the sinfulness of man. To reveal or to expose the sinfulness of man. The holiness of God as revealed in the law became the test of man's thoughts, words, actions, and anything that failed to conform to the revealed holiness in the law. The revealed holiness of God in the law is considered a sin. Anything that doesn't match up to God's holy standard is considered a sin. Now, sometimes we want to bring that way down. And we'll say anything that doesn't, uh, uh, God's, God's standard is impossible for us to attain, so I'm going to make my standard my peers. And then if I'm okay in, in terms of how my peers are, then I figure I'm a pretty holy guy. Maybe even good enough to get to heaven based upon my own holiness. God says, no, I'm the standard, not your buddies. And the Mosaic Law outlined that. Sin is not only a lack of conformity unto the law, but it's a lack of conformity to the holiness of God of which the law is a revelation. The law made very specific requirements of divine holiness so that even children in spiritual infancy could determine whether their conduct was acceptable to a holy God. That's the second purpose, the scriptural purpose of the Mosaic Law. A third purpose, which is related to the second, was to reveal the standard of holiness required of those who would walk in fellowship with the holy God. If we want to have fellowship with the holy God, then we've got to be holy like he is holy. The Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, means a close, intimate, personal relationship. It's not talking about a positional relationship. When we sin, we don't lose our positional relationship with God. But we do lose that koinonia relationship, that fellowship relationship. And the Mosaic Law explained that as well. Israel had been redeemed as a nation. They had been rescued out of Egypt as a nation. It does not mean, in my view, it does not mean that every single person that came out of Israel was a believer. I think there's a, we studied that in our, in our study of the Old Testament not too, too long ago. There are certainly segments that look like they were rabble-rousers and just came along for the ride and were not believers. But the nation was redeemed, and they were redeemed in order to enjoy fellowship with God. God, God saved them out of Egypt for a purpose, and that purpose was to have fellowship with him. As these redeemed ones faced the question of what kind of life was required of those who would walk in fellowship with their Redeemer, the law was given to reveal the standard that God required. It was given to reveal the standard that God required of those in Israel who would walk in fellowship with him. Is there anything like that in the New Testament? Say yes. There, there is law with a little L all over the, the New Testament. There are rules and regulations. Half of the epistles are commands. It's just not the, the law with a capital L. It's not the Mosaic Law. We do live under a rule of life. We're not lawless. That's called antinomianism, and it's not a, a kind thing for someone to call you. We are not antinomian because we're dispensational. 
We just don't believe we live under the rule of life of the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law gave the people of Israel the standard by which they had to follow if they were going to walk in fellowship with God. A fourth purpose of the law is stated by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 3 verse 24, where he said, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. The term schoolmaster, as it was used in Paul's time, refers to the slave that was selected by the father, whose responsibility was to supervise the total development of the child, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. Don't superimpose the American idea of slavery in the South before the Civil War, which was which was uh, fading out without any war having to be fought. But don't don't confuse that with the system of slavery that the Romans and the Greeks had. The slaves over there were the doctors and the lawyers and the educators, and they just gone over and. Every time they needed some more slaves, they'd go whoop grease and they'd take their people over and then they would use those people to train their children. And that was, that was, the, it was a Greek term that Paul translates here, schoolmaster. And so he says the law was a schoolmaster to help lead us to Christ, to train up a child in the way in which he should go and understand that there is a Messiah coming and something about that Messiah. Every area of the child's life was under the supervision of the teacher until that child came to maturity. And it's the teaching of the Apostle Paul that the law served to supervise the physical, mental, and spiritual development of the redeemed Israelite until he should come to maturity in the Lord. A fifth purpose of the law is that it is given to be the unifying principle that made possible the establishment of a nation. The unifying principle that made possible the establishment of a nation. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8, we read, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine. You might have heard it said that the Mosaic Law had as one of its purposes to make Israel a peculiar people unto himself. Israel was to be set apart. We wonder sometimes why the Israelites couldn't eat pork. But then in the New Testament, Paul says, eat eat whatever you want to eat, just take it with thanksgiving, and it's clean for you. Why did he pick out certain things that that we could eat today, and it's not sinful, but it would have been sinful for them to eat? One of the reasons they couldn't eat pork was because all their pagan neighbors sacrificed pork to their deities. So God set this nation aside and made them a peculiar people unto themselves, and it was a unifying principle for the nation Israel. And it's significant. It's going to be a while before we get there, but in our study of the Old Testament, sooner or later we'll get to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah warns the people that because they've abandoned the law of God, that God is going to deliver them into the hands of the Gentiles. The reason they were going to go out in discipline was they had abandoned that unifying principle that made them a special people, a peculiar people unto their neighbors. The sixth thing that is to be observed about the Mosaic Law is that it was given to Israel to separate the Israel, the nation Israel from the nations in order that they might become a kingdom of priests. So in number five, it was to make them a peculiar people unto their neighbors. Number six, related to number five, but slightly different, that they would be a kingdom of priests. That is a nation that mediated the truth of God to the nations of the earth. 
in order that Israel might serve the function of a light to the world, they were given the Mosaic Law, that the law might separate them from the nations. God didn't want the Israelites acting like the Philistines. He didn't want the Israelites acting like the Egyptians. He doesn't want believers in the Lord Jesus Christ acting like a pagan culture either. The seventh place, the law was given to a redeemed people to make provision for forgiveness of sins and restoration to fellowship. No matter what the dispensation, the provision for restoration to fellowship is initially and primarily confession of one's sins. But before the cross of Jesus Christ, God had instituted a system of ritual that went along with that. And we see that in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, where there are five offerings that God instituted for the nation. The nation is preserved as a whole because of the annual offering of the atonement, Yom Kippur. But individuals in the nation were restored to fellowship and received the forgiveness of specific sins through the use of the offerings that God provided. Now, that's not in vogue for today. The confession of sin is, but the offering has already been made in a, in a real way of Jesus Christ on the cross, so we don't function under the system of animal sacrifices. In the eighth place, the law was given to make provision for a redeemed people to worship. Yes, God had an outline of how his people were to worship. And the outline that we see in the Mosaic Law is a very structured system of worship. I don't want to get all off in today on, on current trends in that area. But if we're looking for a biblical model, the biblical model that was given to the nation Israel was a structured model of worship. That's why in our, in our church here, I've told you, and I, and I will stand by this, if we're going to err, if I'm going to err as the one who's leading you into worship, I'm going to err on the side of formality and not on the side of informality. I'd much rather get to heaven and God tell me, hey, listen, Bruce, you could lighten up a little bit. You know, you didn't have to be so formal in your worship. Then I would get to heaven and have my Lord tell me, what in the world were you thinking leading those people in that style of worship? So people have, I know it's a hot topic. I know people have quite different opinions about it. But in the, under the Mosaic Law, God gave the Israelites a system of worship. I'm not implying that we follow the same system of worship, because the system of worship in Leviticus 23 included a cycle of feasts, which the nation was expected to observe annually. Some of those feasts looked backwards to the redemption that they had from Egypt, and some of the feasts looked forward to the things that would happen to Israel in the future. But God had structure. The law in the ninth place provided a test as to whether one was in the kingdom or theocracy over which God ruled. Now, here's something we need to make sure we understand. A person could live in Israel and really not be functioning under the theocracy of Israel. Paul's going to say that, too, later on in the book of Romans. He's going to say all Israel is not Israel. So the law provided a test for the individual to take to see if he or she was actually functioning 
under the theocracy in Israel. Similar to one of the points we've had before with the law providing a test to see if you're in fellowship with God, but distinct enough that uh, Dr. Pentecost puts it in a um, separate point. Deuteronomy 28 is a key uh, chapter in helping us to understand that. And tenth, finally, it becomes clear from the New Testament that the law was given to reveal the coming Messiah. The great truths concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ are woven throughout the law. And the law was given in order that the nation might prepare for the coming of their Redeemer King. It's because of this that our Lord Jesus Christ, after the resurrection on the Emmaus Road, has an incredible Bible study time with those two disciples, and he explains to them about himself from the Law and the Prophets. Every book of the what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, every book you can see the coming Messiah, some more than others, Isaiah perhaps more than Esther, but you can see at least a hint of the Redeemer in every single one of the Old Testament books. So how does this relate to us? Is there anything that a believer, we're going to say throughout this chapter, throughout the book of Romans really, it's going to come up again and again that we're not under the Mosaic Law. Is it something that we just discard, boot out the door, and call bad when it's good? Call something bad that God created? No. As we look back over the reasons for the giving of the law, and I hope you did this as we blew through it, we can observe that there was in the law that which was revelatory about the holiness of God. It was revelation about the holiness of God. This aspect of the law was permanent. What we learn about the character of God, His holiness and other attributes too, what we learn about that, that revelation is permanent. Holiness does not change from age to age. And that which revealed the holiness of God to Israel may still be used to reveal the holiness of God to men today. And also, the things that revealed unholiness at that time can be used to reveal unholiness today. It is this revelatory aspect of the law that Paul refers to as holy, just, and good. Now, there was also a great part of the law that was regulatory. There was a part of the law that was revelatory. That's permanent. There's a part of the law that was regulatory. The law regulated the life and the worship of the Israelite. Listen carefully. It is this regulatory aspect of the law that was temporary and that has been done away with. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 writes, But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Now watch. This is in 1 Timothy. This is one of the last books that Paul wrote. This is a book he's writing to the church. Actually, to pastors, specifically in the church, but to the church as a whole. And he says, We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Now wait a minute, Paul. You've already written in at least two places that we're not under the law anymore. So what do you mean it's good if we use it lawfully? What Paul's, what Paul's telling us is that we need to understand the difference between the revelatory aspects of the law 
and the, the regulatory aspects. The revelatory aspects are permanent. What it says about God and his character are permanent. But the regulatory aspects were temporary. Those who sometimes want to live under the Mosaic Law for a system of holiness today, I wonder if they've really read through the Mosaic Law. I think you'd change your mind. If a law is used to reveal the holiness of God, the unholiness of man, or to learn of the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is used lawfully. Those who attempt to use the regulatory portions of the law, which were only until Christ, are using the law unlawfully. 